Welcome to the International Collective of Female Cinematographers podcast, where every week we will be talking to a different cinematographer and listening to their stories as they navigate the filmmaking world, sharing secrets and experiences to empower our community. The ICFC is a collective of professional female cinematographers from around the world who provide each other with community support and industry advocacy. We are your hosts, Emilia and Akina. Today, we are so excited to welcome Sofia Stieglitz, We'll be discussing working as a cinematographer in Mexico, the influence of interpersonal relationships in our careers, and how she became one of the founders behind Amazonas Electricas, an all-female crew of Latina gaffers and electricians operating out of Mexico. This is part one of our interview with Sofia Stieglitz. Okay, thank you so much, Sofia, for joining us today. Uh, so let's start out with the basics. Um, tell us how you became a filmmaker and how you became a DP specifically. When I was a child, my parents were actors in the Mexican film industry. My father had already been working oh, for over 20 years and my mom was just starting, but they were very involved in that type of like actor lifestyle right so i would skip school go to go to different sets with them different countries and i really loved the filmmaking process growing up i would like go to the art department and try to help go to the wardrobe and try to help um would get these little like small parts that they would put me in or would be an extra or like um there was some roles i did i did do some child acting um mm -hmm. i think it's seven films oh wow and yes but i always liked to be sitting at the camera i thought i felt that that was my favorite spot so I had heard about the London Film School when I was a child. So I would kind of like dream about these scenarios in which I could go study film school at in London. Mm -hmm. And back then we had like this old computer and I looked it up and you could actually request an application package online. Mm -hmm. That was, you couldn't apply online back then this was like in 92 uh, 93 uh, but you could apply to get a package so i applied to get a package got it and tried to apply to london film school when i was like seven years old <laughs> um, the dean wrote me a letter that i still hold with much like nostalgia and care and they basically said i was too young to go and that I could continue my development in film in other ways, like reading and writing. So when my mom saw that this had happened, she decided to put me in like a children's photography course and I got to build my first stenopaque camera and then really got into it. My father had uh, this like Super 8 video camera that he gave me and it became my favorite toy. So we would, instead of playing Barbies or Legos, we would actually use all the toys to make movies and I would like partner up with my cousins and we would make all these uh, crazy explosions and burn the toys. <laughs> Have a story, cut to commercials. <laughs> And then we would actually like charge money to the family to come watch the films. 
So we had the whole exhibitor production exhibition cycle. <laughs> yeah, you were running your own little studio. <laughs> and just from there, kind of grew up and always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and eventually was able to go to film school <laughs> and <laughs> and really loved. I think it, there, it was that that question we all kind of ask ourselves that um when we decide to be filmmakers like what kind of filmmaker you know what what's my role in this and i would dream a lot about being a director but i really connected so much to the camera and to the process of cinematography that by the time i was deciding what i wanted to study in college and university and all that I had already been to a high school that had like a dark room and we were, we were still studying like um, analog photography and all of that. So it was a kind of natural moment for me when I was like, being a, a DP, a cinematographer is amazing. You get to travel, you get to hop on a lot of projects. And, and I realized that for directors, it was a slower process and, mm. and, I kind of felt I was good at it, at being a camera and that I could really like learn more and, and keep developing in that area. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a cinematographer and moved to Barcelona and studied undergrad in cinematography there. Awesome. So um, I know that you eventually ended up at AFI and then ended back in Mexico, in Mexico, where you're originally from. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the decision to, you know, work in Mexico and um, what that, you know, what it's like to work uh, as a cinematographer internationally, not in like, not in the United States or mainly in the United States? The decision was hard for me because in that moment, my partner that was also an artist living in L.A., she was like, if you go back, you're failing. Like, oh. if you don't make it in L.A., you're giving up and you're going mm. back. And it was really rough for me to see that kind of um, feedback, right, from like yeah. a relationship. And I'm not saying it was healthy at all, but... It was like a rough time emotionally for me, but mm -hmm. I kind of did feel empowered and strong about the decision because I was working a lot as a gaffer in that moment in Los Angeles. My cinematography jobs were really like small commercials with not that much budget. <laughs> and suddenly I started getting called to Mexico for bigger projects. Mm -hmm. and more responsibilities, more budgets, brands that have more outreach and that actually kind of let you have more creative or, or like that, that the creativity is really like important. Yeah. So that's when I decided that I would move back, that it would be good to, for my career to have in a way like bigger projects to have a better curriculum. And that was, I think, thinking like seven years ago. So mm -hmm. throughout these seven years, I've had some opportunities in the United States as well as in Mexico. And I think having that possibility, because I have a dual citizenship, mm -hmm. I have both the American and the Mexican nationalities. Mm -hmm. and, and that's like a privilege that mm -hmm. I can really use to develop as a female cinematographer 
from a Latin country in both countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not take that for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, as artists, we're always struggling with the work visas in other places. And mm-hmm. like to work in London is really hard, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So you could be invited by a big production and it's always very complex to work internationally because of the work visas. And especially when you're up and coming, if you're already cinematographer or filmmaker that is very established, uh then it's a different story, right? Everything, money moves everything really quickly. But when you're up and coming, you're you're still in the hustle. Mm -hmm. And that was a decision that I really love that I made back then. I still think sometimes like, oh, should I move here? Should I move there? Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I have to fly to New York because if not, I'm not going to close this job. Mm-hmm. And like, um, it's a lot of investment too. And like betting on projects that you might not get. Spending the money that you've made that you have to pay rent with. So definitely like an expensive lifestyle in that sense. Mm-hmm. And, but I feel we have to kind of um, bet everything in in what we love, right? Mm-hmm. And as female cinematographers or like women cinematographers from Latin countries, I think you totally get this yeah. from Ecuador. Yeah. That struggle and that fight is totally worth it because we love yeah. it. And, um, and I don't see another alternative, right? It's yeah. like... We- we have to work harder Mm -hmm. and that's the way that we're going to continue need to hire a cinematographer well look no further than the icfc's member online database we boast over 300 highly qualified cinematographers for all your filmmaking needs visit our site now and find your next superstar collaborator at icfcfilm.com Um, I was wondering when you, you know, finished school and you were thinking about moving back to Mexico, how did you maintain a network in Mexico or did you always have one? You know, you said that you got offered big jobs in Mexico, but like, did you have like groups of people that you worked with collaborators there already? Or had you always had that? No, um, that's a really interesting question because when I left Mexico to study in Spain and came back, I didn't go to a Mexican film school. So when I did come back, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I don't have a community. I had mm-hmm. some right. that I had met in Europe and that we all kind of went back. And I did have some work with with that community. But I felt really separated from the Mexican community. Mm-hmm. And I talked to an ASC member called Henry Hoffman. Mm-hmm. He was the film the dean at one of the the two main film schools in Mexico mm-hmm. of the public ones that are like have a great level. The mm-hmm. the two public film schools are considered the two best film schools in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So he was like, Oh, you don't have a community here. That's mm-hmm. why you're struggling. Cause I was like, I'm not mm-hmm. getting films, I'm not getting jobs. What's going on? And um, and I was becoming and like operating for other DPs and and I was uh, shooting some stuff and I was hustling, but at the same time didn't feel I was getting features. That is for me the dream <laughs> and for yeah. a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. So 
it took me a couple of years, but that's when I decided I wanted to go to AFI. And he was actually the one that kind of gave me that seed. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know what? I think AFI might be a great place for you because you could create community over there. The community here is already going to be really hard for them to accept you. But if you go to LA, things will change. And in Mexico, we have this thing called, it's a modern concept that comes from a very ancient story. We, we call it Malinchismo. Oh, yeah. And La Malinche was this woman that allied with the Spaniards, with Cortes, when the uh, colonization happened in the Conquista. Mm-hmm. So years later, uh, historians and books and everything, everybody has studied like that story about how this woman, but she was a very smart woman, right? Like she, that's that's like a patriarchal view on Mexican history in a way, because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, she's a traitor. But in reality, she was a slave. She was sold. She was mm-hmm. Well, like a young girl, a child. So because she was a slave and was sold through different communities, she learned different languages Mm -hmm. and she was really smart. So by the time Cortez frees her from one of these communities that had her as a prisoner and as a slave, he realizes that she has this ability for language and, and uses her as her translator. As his translator. So years later, there's this concept in Mexico that Malinchismo is like, oh, it's kind of like the hipster movement in a way. It's like, oh, if it's American culture, then then mm. it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, if it's foreign and if foreign people accept you, then you're cool. Mm-hmm. And a lot of cinematographers from even back in the day, I mean, I've had this type of conversation with... Este Guillermo Navarro, for example, right? Mm-hmm. That is a very established cinematographer mm-hmm. for many decades. Mm-hmm. And he also felt like that, that he had to leave his country to be appreciated. And, and, and it's just still happening. So I didn't think of it like that back in the day. But now that I reflect upon it, I realize that it does have something to do, like working mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, and going to AFI, all these things give you experience, but they also give you prestige. And sadly, the, the society, modern society, kind of has these like moral compasses and like ways that that I do feel that that was like going back and circling to close the question. One of the main reasons I was getting good work here was because I was in LA mm. and because I was coming out of LA. AFI. I did kind of network in a way when I was in Mexico before leaving, and that helped as well, mm-hmm. like creating the base of the community before leaving. And then going to AFI, also meeting people from the Mexican industry in that were working both in Mexico City and Los Angeles. And I think that's really important. Yeah, It seems like Atlanta, New York, Mexico, Los Angeles, they're like these four Sao Paulo, no, like these five cities of America. Bueno, we could count este Toronto, we could este count um, Vancouver, mm-hmm. no, so, este these 
these cities are kind of like at the top of the game in the industry. I think America and the United States has like a bigger industry because it moves more money. But there's also a lot of money in these other places. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Canada, I'm sure it's pretty much like LA and New York and Atlanta, right? But mm -hmm. in South America, the budgets and the reality of the industry are is, is different numbers. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you'll have more box office because we have like a big population that actually goes to the cinema and will pay a yeah. ticket besides SVOD and all of that. But the budgets for the films here or for the projects here are actually way smaller. And it's also back to the Malinchismo thing because a Mexican film is very hard to compete with a box office with Marvel or with all these mm -hmm. commercial films from America. So it's interesting to see from that point of view, not just like the art per se, but like the industry and the business part of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. I think you really do touch on an important point there. And I mean, I've I've definitely experienced Malin. You know, we we don't call it that in Ecuador, obviously Malinchismo, but that that there was a very big difference on how people treated me because I spent uh, when I when I graduated FI, I spent a, a year back home, back in Ecuador with my parents, and there was a definite difference on the way people treated me prior to going to FI and after getting that degree, and that was you know in part because of oh, you went to study at this really prestigious American school and came back with this very prestigious degree. Um, like suddenly you're you're somehow worth more. And like I, that always bothered me a little bit because I'm like, yes, I am a better DP because of this education. But I think there was a lot of emphasis put on like the, the value of that degree rather than like that experience I got for sure. I mean, that's pretty prevalent all over the world. You know, yeah. I'm from Asia and there's some parts of Asia, you can talk about Korea, China, that there's like almost a glorification of the West, you know, mm -hmm. like an obsessive quality of like respect and reverence to all things that come from the West. Yeah. And that's the same thing. You know, it's like a degree is a piece of paper. They don't care if what you studied there, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'll say like, oh, I went to UCLA. It doesn't matter what I studied at UCLA. Yeah. Right? It's like, oh, you went to a school there and there, there's a certain level of, I don't know. I, I think it's it's a little fetishism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very complex social issues, post-colonial trauma. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I also see it changing, right? At least yeah. in, in parts of Asia is starting to change. And back to, you know, talking about distribution and box office, we're seeing that model change too, right? Like, mm -hmm. like the scope of production in Asia right now is the budgets are so big, right? Mm -hmm. Because people, like you say, people actually go to the box office. People will go yeah. to the And China has the population right now, right? Like yeah. if, you have, if you have millions of people go to the box office, then maybe that movie is worth more than, you know, an, an American film that no one will go see in theaters mm -hmm. and goes directly to streaming. You know? well, well, bouncing off of that, uh, with the increase of streaming um, services, because I know they've started investing in certain markets, particularly in Latin America and Mexico or in Argentina, Netflix has started uh, operating operations there. Do you feel that with the influx of that, there has like, been more opportunities for you as a DP or as a filmmaker? Definitely, yes. Like, mm -hmm. interestingly, 
not only for me, right? For mm-hmm. like the community of, of of filmmakers in Mexico. For me personally, it was it's been kind of hard because a lot of the offers I get are for like operator mm-hmm. or, or work. Like mm-hmm. now I'm getting other offers, but I haven't really landed a series. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of cinematographers that I work with or that I am I'm, I'm friends with that are getting in. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't easy for them either, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these operator gigs are really low paid mm. um, in Netflix series Latin America. Yeah. So you're like accepting a rate that is way under what you know you should be doing uh, or getting. Working Monday through Saturday mm-hmm. without stopping. So it's six days for, I mean, I, I don't know what they're offering now, but when the, when the series in Latin America started, they were offering $1,000 a week or... Yeah, that's really low. Even. Yeah. Uh, not even. Like... Um, $700 a week or like we're talking about rates of $120 a day. Yeah. And I mean, obviously compared to other industries, this might sound kind of crazy and privileged, but the reality of how much you have to pay rent in Mexico and all yeah. of that, a lot of operators actually came together and were like, yo, we have to not accept this because mm-hmm. if we all accept this, then we're devaluing our work. Mm-hmm. And then the production companies realized like, oh, we have to actually pay better. That's good. Uh huh. So there was some movement there, right? Like a reaction to this, to the to these studios coming to Mexico, because it wasn't only Netflix; it was like Disney Plus and like other ones. And I say the um, more opportunities, yes, for sure. It's still been hard. The when I founded the Amazonas Electricas, that we can like talk more about later, but we got like offers good offers for series Mm. so that i think that was great like two series have been worked by the amazonas electricas i wasn't there when i for example when i was on the table they like put the different dps on the table and decide right Mm -hmm. i always feel i'm on the table with like amazing people and with great experience and a lot of times like oh she doesn't have that serious experience Mm. Because I haven't wanted to take these operator jobs because they were so badly paid, and and then they don't, I don't get the series, and and sometimes it takes like one director or one producer to really fight for you. But um, like a lot of these jobs were getting were were, were the people who were getting them had already some series experience, and then the other thing that happened to me that was really hard at a personal level was like I got an offer for a Netflix film with a director that I respect and love and that had been dreaming about working mm. with for years and their timings were so crazy that when they called me and they were like hey the production's gonna start these are the dates mm-hmm. that was like prep was starting or like midway through my for my um, birth delivery date, oh. right when I was pregnant. Ugh. So I was like, whoa, it was the first time that it hit me because I had been working until month eight and I was operating and working. And I did, I did lose a couple of jobs because I was pregnant specifically. That was like, 
a tough thing that we've been working as women like in the industry and yet changing but in Mexico the change is not like yeah in LA it's slower the community is like really patriarchal and like mm -hmm. very deep society yeah issues so we lost a couple of jobs kept working um Yeah, shot a lot. Then at month eight, I was like, okay, I'm gonna break. Um, that's when I got the call for the film. Had to say no. Oh no! And it was like a duel for me. Like, whoa, I would love this, and I want to be a mom, and I want to have a family. But um, but it pains me that I had to say no because I can't deliver my child and be on set, right? Yeah. I don't know. Everything happens for a reason. I think we should trust the flow of the universe. <laughs> and I I don't know. A lot of people were like, no, it was a really bad experience. <laughs> the film's not that good. No, like, oh, you guys are just trying to make me feel better. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, after giving birth and I go back to work, I got an offer for an indie feature in New York. The, that production really was very accommodating to the best of their possibilities to support me as a working mother in the in that situation. Mm -hmm. So so when the baby was two months, I got back to work. Wow. Mm -hmm. And and I have a lot of downtime, so I feel I've been able to be with her. But I don't want to accept a crappy paying job. That's mm -hmm. going to make me miss two months out of the first three years of my child's upbringing, you know? Yeah. So, so that's been also like, like another different type of challenge. But I feel like we can do it and we can do great things. Mm -hmm. and like the gaffer that when I, because I, when I founded the Amazonas, I was a gaffer, mm -hmm. but then my best, we call best girl now in the Amazonas. <laughs> nice. She now is the main guy for me. I'm oh, and, awesome. and he has six children. Whoa. Mom of six and badass gaffer. And yeah. she she's done the two series. She's done the she, some films, some a lot of commercials. So and it's also been a learning curve for her in her process mm -hmm. as for all of us. But it, that inspires me for I don't know, like the DP of Marina, that was like an amazing film. Mm -hmm. uh, she also has like five children. And and then I start meeting all these moms that I'm like, oh, cool, we can do it, of course. Like, nothing's going to stop us. We'll just organize ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. B-Cindy is a woman in Latina-owned boutique camera rental house based in Los Angeles. They are passionate about the nuanced design that goes into visual storytelling and as such are committed to supporting filmmakers tell their stories with the best tools available. Plus, for busy cinematographer or camera crew parents, they also offer childcare services during prep. So when you're looking for camera rentals for your next project, check out their extensive repertoire of optics and cameras at www.bcine.com or write to rentals at bcine.com for general inquiry. Um, well, let's talk about um, Amazonas Electricas. Like, uh, you know, speaking of disruptive things, I think that it, you you founded this group and it's in many ways, it's so unique in general as a thing, but also just it's so unique 
in Latin America because there's so few women who uh, are either, you know, in, in any way in the cinematography part, like I and th- I, there's very few female crew members there even, you know, it's so like that's I feel it's really extraordinary what you've done. Can you talk about what prompted you to create this group and what it is and what it does? It's it really is amazing what you're saying because it's so important that younger women have you in your community to look up to and to know that they can be a cinematographer. Yeah. And when we started the Amazonas Electricas, it kind of felt something like that, like there's nothing in Mexico that is actually helping women to feel comfortable to learn lighting and to use the equipment. I remember the first time I went into a, I mean, it was years back, but it kind of gives us a little backstory as to, to give some context. Like the first time I went into a GNE truck in Mexico when I was in like my, see, because as a kid, I would really never go into the truck. It was always like full of smelly old men, you know, <laughs> like it was like I would talk to everybody, but I mean, I think it wasn't like, I also liked being out in the space. Now, I was always taught, like, kind of not to trust some adults in a way, like, always be careful. So I remember being, like, 23 years old and going into a grip truck and lighting truck. And they had, like, nudie posters of nude women posted, like in their like little work area inside the truck Mm -hmm. and i was like oh okay you know like pornography here Mm -hmm. in the truck in a working environment Mm -hmm. so um i didn't say anything i went off the truck and i remember the next time i went in it wasn't there wow it seemed like my presence had altered you know Mm -hmm. the fact that they had noticed that i had noticed so that always is was like an experience that I had lived, right? And 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 then I also felt that like, of course, we're not gonna be feeling safe if the environment is bullying naked women and pornography on the on the, and not because anything is pornography. Like there's limits, right? There's mm-hmm. there's scopes. There's there's different erotica or whatever mm-hmm. and, and and I mean there's nothing wrong with a naked body woman but it was the context that felt mm-hmm. like oh this is like maybe not so comfortable for me mm-hmm. huh? so yeah. and um, so when I, I think free the work and free the bid you know like free yeah. the work movement um really affected a lot of things. It kind of like sparked things in other countries mm-hmm. um, because the Alma Harel kind of like teamed up with women in different countries mm-hmm. and then they were pushing that agenda each and every and in the different places. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Mexican representative of the work in Mexico is called Farida Shredded. She's an amazing director, really talented, really like um, visionary. And she had had this campaign for Chrysler by women for women. Um, and she hired 
Leslie Montero, that is a cinematographer in Mexico that um, that works a lot, that is doing great. And I we had met and, and there was good chemistry. And I had told her like, hey, I've been working as a gaffer in Los Angeles for the past couple of years and I really love it. And um, if you would like um, me to work for you, please consider me. Because there's also that other thing about being boxed in. That's another layer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, are you a cinematographer or you're a gaffer or you're an AC? Or like, mm-hmm. you can be doing everything. It's like, why not? But okay, it's part of mastering your art and it's very complex. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into it, but there's that later layer. So I get the call from Leslie and she's like, yo, there's this project. We want you to gaff. We would love if you could bring GNE crew that will women. I was like, whoa, okay, because I hadn't done that. I was actually working with like a GNE group that I had worked with, but they were all men. And uh, when I was gaffing, and I was like, this is like an amazing situation and challenge in a way. And yeah, like let's let's do this. And I'm like, let's bring them all together. <laughs> so I had already been in contact. Um, some months before with this woman that was recommended to me by an AC that I work with a lot that is amazing from Venezuela that also is like a up-and-coming cinematographer and uh, but but she's kind of like stuck in the box in the AC still mm. and but she was like you have to meet Annie because she's she's like a good Jenny swing in a way in mexico we call them staff it's like you can do grip you can do electric you're a staff member and then then there's the gaffer that is also sometimes the kick grip or sometimes that you have two Mm -hmm. but it kind of works a little bit different from the la um kind of way or structure. So we got that job. I called Annie. I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's come together. Let's let's meet these women. See what their experience is. How long they've been working for. Can they actually work safely on a set? Are they like that savvy, right? Like, and that, and I knew there would be a lot of them that were savvy, but. I want, but they, there's always like levels mm-hmm. and that, because in no way I was like putting them down, you know, like I just wanted to know what the experience was because if we were going to work professionally at a high level for a big production company and campaign and client, it was like, okay, this is a lot of responsibility. We have to make a solid crew with people that actually have a lot of experience. I knew Annie had a lot of experience because she had been working for like big gaffers and on big shows. Mm-hmm. And then she had met a couple more than this other woman from Peru that was also doing it. And so we started like bringing everybody together and we were like, okay, let's do this first job. And it was great. Like the first job was amazing. It flowed. Everybody was freaking out. They were like, you need help carrying that journey. And we were like, get out of here. What are you talking about help carrying this journey? Like, no, sir, please sit down. You might get hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So that job went amazing. And, And we didn't have that name back then. That was our first job. And then we were there that started raining. We were working in a soccer field. We were like throwing line like in the rain. And I'm like, 
carrying like super heavy equipment. And I'm like, these women are like, we're like Amazons, like warriors, you know, mm. we're the electric Amazons. And they were clicked. And I was like, that's the name. <laughs> so I took a bunch of pictures, created the Instagram, and then it boomed. It boomed. Mm. We kept meeting other women, rotating. Some women weren't really like wanting to work with us. Some were. And we became this like super platform for women. And everybody would write to us like, hey, can I, can I um, learn with you? Can mm. you teach me? Can I be your intern? Can I, I do this other thing, but can I help? Like the reaction of the industry and the community was amazing. And that was like five years ago, 2018. Got contacted by another DP, started working for him, started then networking. They met Annie. And then when I was like kind of getting more cinematographer jobs, I was like, but there's it. Take Anita. Anita's good. You already know her, you know, like, um, and then the the next best girl that is Mandy Lou, that was Annie's best girl. She's the daughter of a very experienced gaffer. She's like, you know what, guys, I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to be a gaffer. I want, I got this job offer. And we were like, of course, go get it. You know, and and that's, and now Maya, there's another gaffer that in the Amazonas that comes from the art department uh, that she jumped to Jenny when she saw we existed because she was like, I always wanted to do this, but it was like super much environment. I didn't feel safe. And and it wasn't only me feeling like that in the truck, right? It was like the consensus of women. And it was the consensus. It was like, this is not a safe environment for women for us to learn in. And camera kind of became one. Like it was hard and still is. And, and we lived through as a community of women. There's horrible stories. Like, but it was kind of more open in a way. Like there was more women in camera. And and in Mexico, the first cinematographer was Eliana Cardenas. Mm. And like... Um, there was some other, uh, Mercado, and like, mm -hmm. and now, now there's more and more and more, but they were like the first ones pushing that. But there was always like women in camera. And in the Gini crew, it was very hard to see them. And, and we're a big industry in a big city, like 24 yeah. million people city. Yeah. So, este, See, like, like we don't have the population of China for sure because nobody has it. But as a city, it's like that type of like mass, you know, people. So the industry has a lot of jobs, and we ended up finding like eight women. No, kind of like some some wouldn't come. Like we've been thirteen, we've been eight, we've been. Mm -hmm. It's been in movement, and because mm -hmm. then some women. I mean, it's complicated. Like strong women working together. It's like it also has its things we have to heal and and learn of how to communicate with each other in a in a Latin country when they're like, oh, she's your competition. Right. She's not your sister. She's a guy. That, she's the one that's going to take your man. And that's yeah. very like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mexico mentality. Yeah. So we we have to restructure the sisterhood you know, and heal mm -hmm. it. And it's been a lot of work. And some people want to put in the work, some don't. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. and, and we've also hired other men and some like they're. 
it's been very fluid mm-hmm. and it's been great because we've been able to share and kind of open that department to women and yes it hasn't been easy but a very controversial but it's been amazing <laughs> wow no i think it's it sheds so much light on the the need for more women working in grip and electric in particular not just in latin america but i think overall in the world um yeah. i think I mean, it's, it's not available it's not easy to get into genie you know yeah. i don't know there's like if it's being gatekept or if it's just like a physicality thing mm-hmm. like why why that is it's just i think a lot of people are intimidated by electricity maybe i don't, yeah. I don't know also you yeah. know and yeah. i think that those are just factors that it is intimidating genie is getting into genie is intimidating yeah um, and it kind of feels like it comes from the families of men yeah. that it's like i don't know which like industrial revolution but but like electricity welding all yeah. this skilled work mm-hmm has always been kind of like a men's thing, right? Yeah. There's very few women that have broken through that. Mm -hmm. And now it's opening more and more and more. We recently got invited to participate as the Amazonas Electricas in a documentary that 3M is sponsoring, company 3M, and it's called Skilled. And it's a documentary about skilled work and women and people of este como underrepresented communities mm-hmm. um, so the three characters is like this like black young welder that loves what he does but it was really hard for him to like break from the stigmas of his community and all the the, the things he she grew up with and become like a proper welder and like maintain his family. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the other character is this woman from Canada that she's like a safety officer for construction. Mm-hmm. And um, she's a, and she's like the first and only woman doing that in Canada. And then the other character is Plumber Paige, that she's amazing. She's writing books. She's teaching and she loves her Thing, and she's a Gen Z, so like really young American, este, young woman inspiring her community. And then the other two characters, are main, the main character is Annie because her story is amazing too. Like she used to be a stay-at-home mom and then discovered filmmaking. And like 10 years later, she's a gaffer for the Amazonas mm. Electricas. So este, that was very transformational for her. Yeah. And, um, and then I'm in the documentary too, kind of talking about this movement and how important skilled work is in the film industry. Yeah. And um, that's a parenthesis. But <laughs> going back to what we were talking about, the boys clubs of skilled work is like, because our industry is kind of young, right? It's mm-hmm. 130 years, 20 at most. Yeah. And um, it kind of comes, it, 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 it kind of, I can imagine that the first men doing that came from those industries and then slowly became the film industry. And then the, those families and the sons and the, and Mexico and in the world is still like this. Like I remember Victoria Storado telling me that his Jenny crew is his family, like mm-hmm. his brothers, his cousins, his nephews, his, 
And um, and in Mexico, the working gaffers are families as well, or or like communities of men, but that are very like, oh yeah, my my grandpa was a gaffer, and my father is a gaffer. And in the Amazonas Electricas, we have um, two members that their fathers are gaffers or electrics, or that are married to gaffers and electrics. So it's really interesting also to see the the women that are. And then there's women that come from like different backgrounds or like that and that they, they did the jump and that they're in now. But it's definitely been hard for for women. And I feel really proud of all the women that have reached out to us and really used the platform to like from that inspiration, but actually putting it into action and learning and growing and going out there and making good money doing what they like to do. Love what we've been focusing on in this interview? What about the angle we've been taking? Have you found it illuminating? Help us power our community by going to icfcfilm.com slash friends and making a donation today. We're an all-volunteer group and your support will help us keep our website rolling, our events lit, and our podcast punny. Okay, maybe the last one's free, but we do need your help for everything else. And don't forget to subscribe. Pivoting a little bit more back to you, um... What is something you wish you knew when you were starting out? Like, what would you tell, like, 23-year-old Sophia? Mm, <laughs> that's a good one. Mm, I, I think one important thing would be, like, learn the equipment, but but focus more on the, you know, on the soul of the stories. How interesting. Uh, our last guest said almost identically the same yeah. 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 That's amazing. Yeah. It's like collective consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Third experience. The, um, yeah, because like the technology in the industry and the prosumer phase of like filmmaking when you don't have money or big projects to work in, you kind of get caught up in this like, oh, the latest equipment, the 4K, the no sé qué, the 6K, the, mm-hmm. and the, it is pretty overwhelming. And, and and it's crazy because like, especially like us coming from AFI and all of that is like, we know every camera, like you have to learn them. But and we're always learning new lenses because there's a bunch like um, like you have to use one set of each every job to actually or test each set every it's a lot of work and we can see other tests but you doing your own testing coming to your own conclusion takes time but I feel in a way because of this marketing and because of the this need to be like I need to start sharing now. Um, we kind of get a little bit distracted sometimes about the equipment. And I feel that with with the years, for me personally, was realizing... Because I always knew story was important. But I never un- realized until later, I think, the importance of each... Like, um, the, the, the responsibility that comes with telling a story with one of the things. Definitely the representation or the the talking from your own experience or your own like culture. Then there's the when you're that that's kind of new in a way. I mean not new but 
Like now there's more consciousness and respect about when you're portraying another person's culture or another culture that is not your own. That responsibility, I think. When I was in my 20s, that wasn't like a social issue like it is now or like cultural appropriation or those concepts. And I think it's like consciousness and respect and a lot of things that we have to have present when we're choosing and telling stories. And and I really wish that more people kind of we could kind of like it's because it's hard because you don't want to censor anything right but there's also all this like commercial feeding the um, kind of the venous parts of our humanity mm-hmm. and um like what are we teaching the kids with this content what are we teaching ourselves what are we feeding our souls and, and it's so because it's not the same when we're talking about art house cinema or like that those tendencies or horror films or that that when we're talking about like i don't know like all these (laughs) modern soap operas and series yeah so i think um yeah i would tell myself that like just kind of like check your check your heart and like check your morals a compass when choosing and telling stories and and do it respectfully and rude. I think it takes like time traveling and meeting people and, and learning from these other communities or like even from the American community in that sense. Like there's a lot that I really appreciate from like American culture. I know like it's controversial, but like I really appreciate that American culture is is pushing the pronouns because that inspires my community to push it. And it's and I really love the inclusion agenda that I wish was like faster, but because then that pushes the rest of the world to do it as well. But that's something that now we have learned that I wish I could have told my 23 year old self. And I think that's really beautifully put. Let's, you know, speaking of storytelling and feeding our souls, let's manifest. If you could shoot anything in the world, anything at all, what would it be and why? Do a burst. I would love to hear what you guys have to say about that. <laughs> it's a hard one, but say no say it's um I think it's like definitely magical stories that inspire people to connect with Mother Earth and like nurture respect and sounds really hippie. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like to to kind of inspire everybody to be like kinder and maybe films that can help us heal the traumas and inspire us to move past that. We're going to take a little break and we'll be back in a few days with part two. Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow us on Instagram at the ICFC. You can also reach us by writing to ICFCpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to tune in for part two of our interview with Sofia Stieglitz. This episode was produced by Emilia Mendieta Cordova, Fabian Hausepian, 
Akina Vandevelde, Senda Bonet, and Barbie Lung. 